According to a United Nations report, 95% of Afghans are now not getting enough to eat. Can we do anything about that? Should we? I'm Scott Ott with Bill Whittle and Stephen Green. This episode of Right Angle is brought to you by the members at BillWhittle.com. Gentlemen, this story comes to me from the Wall Street Journal uh, that starts off with just a heartbreaking tale of a 40-year-old woman who has six children and is working to clean the homes of wealthier people in a nearby neighborhood for 70 cents a day and apparently at some point borrowed money from one of these wealthy people. Uh, She doesn't have the means to pay it back, nor does her husband. And as a result, if she can't pay it back within three months, they have to give their daughter to the wealthy person who will eventually marry that daughter off to one of his three sons, you know, when she grows up to be, you know, at least a middle schooler. Um, I don't want to get into the details of that repulsive culture, uh, but I think we're in an in a situation that we've been in time and time again in international relations where we see something horrible going on in a country, in this case, the destitution of the people of Afghanistan, but we don't have good relationship with the government of that country, usually because it's some sort of dictatorship or autocracy as it is with the Taliban now running Afghanistan. And the heart of the American people says we care We want to do something, uh, but the head says we can't do anything that would help to prop up the Taliban government. Stephen Green, um, I don't know how to thread this needle, and I I don't imagine anybody else does either. Otherwise, we would have done it a a while ago. But the United States did cut off a lot of funding uh, when the Taliban took over back in August. Um, Do you think it's time to step in and say, look, while we're trying to figure out if there's a way to have detente with the Taliban, let's see if we can help to feed some of the Afghans? If it goes through the Taliban, then no, because you know it won't reach the people it's supposed to. Uh, It's a horrible thing to have to say, but I'm not the one who made me have to say that. That's on Joe Biden Um, or his handlers, whatever you want to call it. I need to talk about a little history here. Uh, Retreats are about the most difficult operation a military can perform. They're just inherently almost impossible. Even And I'm not even just talking about a fighting retreat. I'm talking about a a retreat under mostly peaceful conditions. Your back is to the enemy. Everything's going the wrong way. You've got to figure out what order to get people out in with the last people having to still be able to protect themselves somehow as they're getting on the plane or the helicopter or the, the crossing the bridge, whatever it is. And I'm not here to praise the Soviet Union. It was an evil empire. It belonged on the ash heap of history, and I'm glad it's there. But when they left Afghanistan, they did so in an orderly retreat. They negotiated with the Mujahideen, which are not the same as the Taliban, despite what uh, Osama bin Laden would have you believe. They got a ceasefire with the Mujahideen that they hoped would hold. They had two main uh, routes north out uh, out of Afghanistan and into Soviet Uzbekistan. They kept those roads guarded. The one road only had to move out, I believe it was one reinforced motor rifle division, and that was out of the the western part of the country, and they retreated first. And then they had two plus motor rifle divisions to take out of uh, Kabul, again, north into Uzbekistan. And they did this in an orderly way. And the last soldier to leave Afghanistan was a Soviet general whose name escapes me, but he was the commander 
of all Soviet forces in Afghanistan. And he marched across that bridge with his chin held high. It was a difficult and painful thing for him to have to do, but his retreat was orderly and he was able to march out himself chin held high. Compare that to what happened in August. Now, for all the years I've been saying we have to get out of Afghanistan, it never occurred to me, and I take the blame for this. It was a total failure of imagination on my part. I never believed we completely abandoned the air base at Bagram. Uh, and the reason is simple. Uh, not the failure on my part, but the reason to keep Bagram open was simple. For terrorists in Libya and Syria, just that lawn mowing that Bill likes to talk about, bad guys pop up and you got to drop some hellfires on them. We can do that pretty easily in those places. They're close to the sea. They're close to NATO air bases. Afghanistan is different. We've got no local air bases and we never will. And the only other option for doing this this lawn mowing is to have an entire aircraft carrier stationed in the Indian Ocean with one job. And that is such overkill. It's such it's a complete waste of an aircraft carrier. And we don't have enough of them to go around as it is. So it never occurred to me that pulling out of Afghanistan would entail closing Bagram. But Biden closed it first. It would have been as if the Soviet general in uh, in the late 80s had had I don't even know how he could have messed this up anymore. The closest thing I could come to an historical analogy is if Joe Biden had been in charge of Napoleon's logistics for invading Russia. And when they still had two mi 200 miles to go for Moscow, ordered all their own supply depots to be burned. And the reason I'm given this little history here and showing you just how badly Biden screwed up, Scott, is all the tragedy, including this poor little girl who's probably going to get sold off into a life of uh, virtual bondage. It's just the details that inevitably followed what Joe Biden did last summer. Bill Whittle, they go on to mention this Wall Street Journal story um, that the uh, the lender was contacted by the reporter and the lender confirmed that he had made the offer that he'd take the girl in exchange for waiving the debt. Um, and the lender, when you know asked about this said, I also don't have money. They haven't paid me back. So there is no option but taking the daughter. The, the mother says, if life continues to be this awful, I will kill my children and myself. I don't even know what we're going to eat tonight at which point her husband interjects, I will try to find money to save my daughter's life. Bill, it's hard to read stuff like that and not feel compassion toward people and not have a way to separate those people from their despotic government so that you can reject the one and embrace the other. Well, first of all, it's not the, just the despotic government. If you've got a private citizen, so to speak, who's willing to take somebody's daughter, when you say he's going to marry her off to one of his sons, that's not what's going to happen. His sons don't have any money either. He's going to marry a 13-year-old girl off to some 70, 80-year-old guy with a with stained red beard, and that's what's going to happen. And when you have a culture where this kind of thing is acceptable, you have a more difficult problem. The short, short answer is, I think the guy who's ready to accept a daughter as a, as a uh, 
payment in property and then turn her into a child uh, concubine, I don't care if that guy starves at all. But if I've got a mother who's saying, I, I, or a father who's saying, I'm going to try and find some money so we don't have to sell my daughter, I think those people need help. And so now we get down to the to the basis of the problem. When, when, when we say things like we can't do anything about it, people here that we're not willing to do something about it, that we don't want to do something about it. And that's not the case. The, the problems of the world can be solved. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, they could be solved by the United States if the people who we were helping would get in the game. I mean, this is what it comes down to. There is a way out of this, by the way, and don't let me forget that at the end, but just take an example of what we had to deal with with Africa, okay? Well, I remember when we had the, the, all of the fundraisers for, you know, uh, for, you know, Feed the World and, and, and Farm Aid, all of these fundraisers, not Farm Aid, all these Live fundraisers Aid. for Africa. Yes, Live Aid. So we raise all this money and government sends all this money and it goes to warlords like, uh, you know, Adid. And then he sits on his truck and distributes the food to his cronies and the people who need it don't get it. And so on and so on and so on. In the 60s and 70s, we sent millions and millions and millions of dollars to Africa to help starving people, to set up basic economies. And the dictators took them and they, and they took this money and they built international airports in the jungle with four lane freeways that went seven miles into the jungle and stopped because there's nothing else there. They did it for the prestige. They did it for their own for their own image. And so you are stuck with this problem. And the problem is, is that despite the fact that there are decent people there, their cultures are broken. And when I say broken, I should rephrase that because we need to put things in context. It's not that their cultures are broken. That's how people have lived on this earth forever. People have been selling their daughters forever, forever. That since there have been people, this has been happening. It's only since Western minds have come along and realized that there are better ways to do things, more decent, more human, more caring ways to do things. And that includes getting up in the morning and going to work every day, that, that we have something to compare this to. So yes, I'm tremendously sympathetic towards these people. And to be perfectly honest with you, if the father's attitude is, I'm going to get up early tomorrow and see if I can find some way to get some extra work, I say, bring that guy over to America. He sounds like a good, hardworking guy and a family man, cares about his kids. I'd love to have an American like that. But when you have a culture that is also willing to accept a daughter in trade for, for a business loan, would you do that, Scott? If you had to pay your rent and you had bills that had to be paid and somebody will said, well, uh, Scott, I owe you $7,000. Well, if I don't get my $7,000, I'm going to lose my house. Well, we can give you your daughter. Would you take it to save your house? Would you? Would you? No, you wouldn't. And neither would you, Stephen. Neither would I. And neither would anybody watching this. So you cannot discuss this problem unless you discuss the problem. And the problem is, is that is that the the sympathy and the and the compassion and the decency that's built into Americans is part and parcel of the success of America. And when we look at all of the reasons why we're successful and we want to take that success and help people, the reason that we are successful is because we want to help them. But there comes a point when you have to when you have to understand that that there is no way out of this problem except for one way. And I'm serious about this. The only thing that I have ever seen work ever, ever, and the only thing that gives me hope 
is this idea of micro of microloans. This yeah. is the only thing I've seen that has ever, ever given me hope. And if you're not familiar with it, it's very simple. I'm more familiar with the situation in Africa. So just as a small example, here's most cases women because they, they have no access to capital whatsoever. Some woman will basically say, listen, I know how to sew and I've got four relatives who know how to sew. And if we had a small loan, we could get a couple of sewing machines and we could then make money. We could repay the loan back and then I could employ all of my relatives and so on. And so they, they need like two hundred dollars. And you know what the amazing thing about the microloans is? People put in, they chip in some money, they send the $200 to this woman in Africa, and 98% yeah. of those loans are paid back in full. 98% of them. And those business, now in place of people who were starving there before or dependent on handouts, now you've got a woman who's running a small business and you've got some success. Even in America, this works. When I, when I finally realized that as a lifelong bachelor, I'm just not going to clean my apartment no matter how many times I said I would. I hired a maid service and the person who I liked the most suddenly stopped showing up and, and she didn't have my email address. So she wrote me snail mail letter. Four weeks later, I decided to check the mail. She's decided to go into business. Would I be interested in, in paying her in her new business? Absolutely, I would be interested in paying her. She was absolutely terrific. Now this business employs 25 or 30 people. She's good with her, with her employees because she knows what it's like to go in and clean people's houses. She, she, she took the risk. She, she, she did the, she did the work and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And this is how it works, and it's not a secret, Scott. So if you've got a barrier, an impenetrable barrier between American or Western compassion and generosity and people who need help, then in order to destroy that barrier, you can either go around it like you can with microloans, but if you're going to knock it down, you got to have people hitting it from both sides. You can't just send America over there and try and enforce civilization on these people because we gave that a 20 year spin and it didn't work. If they're not willing to knock that wall down from their side, we're willing to help on the other side. But if they're not willing to do it, then you have to ask yourself, you cannot save a person who, who is determined to drown. And I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about cultures here. And, and to say that you have to, if I throw an anvil overboard and I tell you to save that anvil and you go diving after that anvil, here's what's going to happen. The anvil is going to the bottom. Either you're going to go with it or you're not. That's the choices. And, and we need to understand that this fundamental morality has got to be something that is a, that is, that is something that both parties want to work on and are willing to work on and take risks for. I think Bill is headed in the right direction there. And I think um, that one of the things that gives me hope is ideas like um, Starlink, the satellite system that provides internet access uh, and will eventually around the world, this band of thousands of these little satellites that Elon Musk has sent up. I think um, if there's hope for Afghanistan, it doesn't lie in heavy-handed top-down solutions. That's what the Taliban is trying to invoke right now. And... Um, the good thing about the Taliban is that most of them are not exactly on the cutting edge of technology. So I think we're going to be able to make some connections for things like microloans, for things like um, 
missionary efforts, not just to bring the gospel to a people who are just trapped in this dark and desperate kind of cultural religion, but to bring um, food and resources and education. And, and a lot of things are going to be happening discreetly that we don't see in the news. They will be happening behind the scenes, underground. You know, it's kind of like in China, which is, you know, nominally an atheistic country. There are thousands upon thousands of Christian house churches in China that the government can't do a thing about because they're all sort of under the radar. Um, and that's my prayer for Afghanistan as well, that there will be uh, not only some self-organizing within the country and these people like this gentleman who will do anything to save his daughter— uh, but there will be people from the outside who will realize that butting your head up against a brick wall is not the solution. But Afghanistan has a long border and a lot of opportunities, and they can't control the sky above, and the signal will get out and will get in to Afghanistan. And my prayer is that Americans will not treat Afghanistan like it's the government of Afghanistan, but will see the people and their need, and will respond. And I have faith that that will happen because I said we're Americans. For Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, I'm Scott Ott. Thanks to the members at BillWhittle.com for making Right Angle possible. 